0: I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to the Heritage Radio Network. We can review your absolute number one favorite podcast in the entire world. My name is Jack Insley. I'm joined by the one and only Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network, Aaron Fairbanks. Good morning, Aaron.
2: And uh, good morning indeed, Jack. Lovely to be here. Lovely to be here.
1: <laughs> Beautiful overcast day here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um Yeah, welcome to this show. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. We are Heritage Radio Network, uh, the world's number one food talk radio station, um, to put it lightly. This show is uh, our attempt at distilling the full week of programming. We do about 35 shows a week into one little digestible recap for you so you can get a taste of what's going on around the network here in one show. And uh, what we like to do every week is start it off with our last great bite, To kick things off, Erin, I already got a a spoiler. I I know what yours is, but why don't you tell everybody else?
2: I had possibly the best pizza of my life at uh, Saragina, uh, the pizza shop over... I'm sorry. Ah,
1: ah, Roberta's was the right answer, I think.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I love Roberta's pizza, and I eat it all the time, and it has a near and dear place in my heart. But something magical was in the air uh, in Bedside last night. I ordered the prosciutto the, uh, carciofi, uh, which is basically ham and artichoke pie. Um, and it was, I don't know, it was just like totally, it was like singing. Um, I love Sarah Gina. I had a good friend in town from Chicago. That's like kind of our go-to, um, kind of romantic girlfriend date spot. And It is a romantic
1: um, place. You guys are outside?
2: Uh, A little chilly for outside last night. We had a little... We're snugged up in the corner in there. Mm. What I love about Sergina, aside from, of course, the delicious food, is the service is, like, so Italian. They're basically like, "Uh, you tell us. But uh, it's a little funny because they come to the table and they just kind of stand there and you're like, "Um, so we said, we're going to start with drinks and then we would like some food and then maybe more drinks and then the check. Mm. But it's like almost like all of the you know, pieces of service are something of a surprise, um, which I think some people find annoying, but I find like super charming because I love just being uh, anonymous in a restaurant, having a great meal and like no pressure to like rush or leave or do anything but chill.
1: That's awesome. Their, their takeout spot is, uh, well, like a retail spot uh, next door in the bakery is really awesome too. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah, big time. Nice. Well, uh, mine was Babuji. G. Uh, ah, yes. Really, really cool kind of, what do you call it, Nouveau Indian? I don't know. Um, <laughs> nouveau Indian spot in the East Village. Um It's really just the the talk about service. The service there is so incredible. They're just the warmest and the nicest. And it's a really long wait, of course, because it's a popular place. But the guy, he puts his arm around me. He's like, dude, you know, don't worry about it. If you if you can't wait it out, no problem. Let me give you a few coupons to Maiden Lane. Take two dollars off each of your drinks. And, uh, you know, we'll call you when it's ready. So there's like this partnership with the sister bar and you go and get a discount on drinks. I thought that was a really nice idea. Yeah, a that's that has awesome. Long waits.
2: Yeah, you might as well just like, hey, this is a thing. It's it's nice when a business is like, instead of being like uh, annoyed by the problem that's the same every time, they're like, hey, how can we make this a, like a solution and yeah. something good for like the neighborhood, the community?
1: No, it's great. You go next door, you have a cocktail, it, it's discounted. It's like what you would do anyway if you sit down for dinner is have a drink first, right? So it was nice. And uh, I got to say, the buttered chicken is everything it's hyped up to be um, one of the best dishes I've had in, in, in quite some time and I love my Indian food so oh, good stuff oh
2: yeah man I might squeeze in a little shout out too for Missy Robbins new place Lilia over in uh, Williamsburg um, Sick Pasta get there grab a seat at the bar early nice cocktail and uh, and, and make yourself like Homie, it was uh, super delicious. So, Mm. more to come on that. Yes,
1: a week of delicious food. Yes. And with that, let's move to the studio and listen to some clips from the week of programming. (laughs) So, we will start. With a social media primer, which I know everybody loves, we all want to get better at social media, right, Erin?
2: I mean, yes, I want. I, I'm like, someone just tell me the definitive rules that I can follow, and then I can just like kind of do it. But unfortunately, you have to like stay super engaged and be tasteful and wonderful, like you do in all things. Um, I loved this show. Uh, I found like. Laura O'Reilly, the CEO and founder of Wallplay, to be incredibly charming. I'm also super psyched to try out the app she recommended at the top of, show, of the show. Artsy, that sounds yes.
1: awesome. So to orient you guys, the the name of the show was Tech Bites. This is hosted by Jen Liutzi, um, and as the name implies, discusses uh, technology in in food and not cooking technology, but more along the lines of apps and uh, software and things of that nature. And the guest was uh, a woman named Laura O'Reilly, who's the CEO of wall play, as Aaron said and yeah let's let's take a little listen into the show and get an idea of uh, some of the social media tips she was sharing
0: how
3: important is it to the success of a business to have a good visual identity and to have this strong visual presence in all these digital channels I think
2: it's important I think it's important not to take on more than you can manage excellently
0: I think that's... Oh, say that again, because that is one of the most important things about (laughs) social media and digital marketing. I think it's important not to take on more than you can execute
2: excellently.
1: Well, how do you know?
2: Meaning, don't bite off more than you can chew. So if you're going to have an Instagram account, then really make sure you're populating your Instagram account regularly and engaging with people. You know, If you're going to decide whether you're on Twitter or not, you know don't do it if you don't think you can keep up with It's my
1: point. It's a great point.
2: Yeah. I like that. I'm like smaller bites, smaller bites do, do less, but do it better. Um, this episode is totally worth a full listen. Um, I, I really, I was really a big fan of, of Laura's advice, um, across like Instagram, but also just kind of thinking about the way you're showing up visually in the world. Um, it's like a nice take. That's definitely like not something that comes naturally to me. And I feel like I walked away with some really concrete, You know, steps, ways to think about it, ways to activate, operationalize some of that stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, the worst thing is when you see someone's Twitter account that has like a tweet from 2013 and then like some cross-linked Facebook posts from a year later. You know, you're like, all right,
2: so don't look at my Twitter account, guys. (laughs) Oh, stop! (laughs) You're not that bad. I'm not that bad, but like I have kind of given up on Twitter. I'm not gonna Mm, lie.
1: mm, I'm so I can focus on Instagram. Hey, not a bad choice. Um, So shifting gears entirely uh, and shifting diets, that is the uh, theme of this week's episode of Sharp and Hot, hosted by Emily Peterson, a really great show that kind of ranges from cooking advice to uh, personal advice, again, along the lines of Tech Bites, a lot of advice on this show. And uh, the topic here was, as I said, shifting diets, which um, I haven't done with much success in my life, personally. (laughs)
2: what how's the croissant we haven't had a croissant update in a while jack
1: that's because i'm eating a a bagel with like a mountain of butter on it as we speak
2: all right well shifting the carb butter combo i can't stop you know my advice remains the same put an egg on it
1: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely well this show um emily was joined by janet rangathan uh i hope i got that right R- how about that? She's from World Resources Institute and the architect and co-author of the current World Resources Report, creating a sustainable food future, talking about how we can shift our diets and how people can shift their diets in a more sustainable direction. So let's take a little listen here and see what the show is all about
2: because people eat out of habit so much and that like you said the changing the amount of production is kind of that's not going to change all that much and people's habits are going to change very very slowly so what are some of those habits that you can identify that people like how did we find ourselves here
0: well, uh, I, I think you know some of the. I mean, first of all, we we um, we actually modelled a, a number of different scenarios, saying, you know, what if the U.S. you know average person consumed this different kind of diet, and then we looked at the sort of global impacts of the same scenarios. Um, but what we found was that. Um, The average U.S. person, if they actually cut their meat consumption, which is actually quite large relative to the global average, in half, they could reduce their greenhouse gas footprint by half. So they didn't need to go vegetarian or vegan, but just making a dent in what they're eating. Likewise they could make even um, less aggressive um, shifts, like maybe shifting from beef to pork or poultry. And even shifts like that could reduce their greenhouse gas impacts by, by 15%. What? Or, you know, maybe cutting out some of that beef and eating um, beans. Or, you know, instead of taking two slices of ham, take one slice of ham. So,
1: <laughs> Just one. Just have one.
2: Just have one. Well, I, I do think, like, you know, uh, I do appreciate kind of a, a push towards you know, a a reduction and like making steps that seem like more in line with the way people are actually gonna change their diet. So I do like that, like, hey, instead of two, take one instead of like beef, maybe pork, and doing some like simple swap outs. I think there's some really fascinating data out there on kind of global food diets, you can take a look and see kind of um, what the calorie composition is in, you know, China versus the US versus South Africa and see kind of what portion of Fruits and vegetables, meats, grains. People eat in different parts of the world, and it's it's kind of crazy to think about like the the right diet. Um, there's so many factors that go into that from a cultural standpoint, but also like the impact on the planet. It's a it's a big topic.
1: Yeah, my my advice is just get a vegetarian girlfriend or a boyfriend, <laughs> and it'll totally shift your diet. You have no choice. Um, but it's interesting. I was I was actually thinking about this the other day, and we'll we'll get to this later in the show when uh, we're going to be airing a tribute to Josh Ozersky. But thinking about like what the landscape in in the foodie world was like seven eight years ago, when it was all what what do they call it lardcore, You know, where everybody was it was like bacon, 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 butchers, meat, 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 and then you see. Some of the people that are getting like tons of attention now, Mike Anthony winning an award for the V is for Vegetables book and just so much more of a focus on uh, vegetable driven cuisine these days. And I think that's cool. I think I think it is shifting.
2: It was like evolving, I might say. It's evolving.
1: Evolving. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) And uh, speaking of awards, Lucky Peach was the big, big winner this year at the 2016 James Beard um, Media and Broadcast Awards. They won Publication of the Year.
2: Oh, I love those guys.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, if you know Lucky Peach, you know why they would be the winners. uh, They're known kind of for the subversive commentary on the global food industry and... um, really top-notch food writing in that publication. Definitely friends of the network. And Kathy Irway was was joined by the team of Lucky Peach and uh, talking about their book, the book The Worst of Lucky Peach, which is like...
2: <laughs> Worst uh, as in sausage world. Correct. W. Yeah, yeah. okay.
1: You U. do it. You. W. You U. do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is uh, tapping into the sausage underground world. I don't know. I don't know much about that, Aaron, but Isn't
2: The Sausage Underground? Yeah,
1: I I can't speak Is to that. Is that code for
2: something? No. <laughs> no, it's not.
1: Let's play the clip before this gets worse.
2: Because people eat out of habit. Scratch that. Like you said the changing the amount of popularity in sausage or
3: uh, well, I mean, you know, the the jokes are part of the draw for us. Um, we really lean into that sausage humor as much as possible. I don't think, um, you know, we're not we're not scared of its uh, resemblance to other things.
0: <laughs> um,
3: but no, I mean, the thing is, like, once I, I I thought the same thing as you. I sort of thought, okay, well, like, sausage is a pretty narrow literally it's like it's a little bit of a weird thing to dive deep on um and then we started doing the book and i just realized that sausage is really everywhere it's so pervasive in american food culture everywhere you go there's sausage um and and you know there's all sorts of sort of connotations tied to it but the fact of the matter is americans love sausages and hot dogs
1: it's nice to see that the authors of that book also can't avoid the jokes (laughs)
2: <laughs> I feel like that's like one of the best parts of working with sausage is the sausage jokes. Um, I love I like I've never been like a huge sausage eater, but I feel like my my favorite lately is uh, Star Wars, like uh, great oh, yeah. kind of Swiss style sausage. And I think that was a fun thing about this issue is you really get to kind of like take a tour of sausages of the world and every culture has one. They're like, uh, you know, like a dumpling, like breads. There's they're the same kind of thing in different versions across the continents. It's pretty cool. I'm
1: trying to think of the Thai sausage and what, that's, what, what it's named, but... Um I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, I love. I love that. Like every sausage is completely different depending on the culture. I always thought that was cool. I
2: like Kathy. Are you trying to revive a popularity in sausages? I'm like, were sausages ever not popular?
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, like, people
2: like to eat some sausage. Not gonna lie.
1: Amen. All right. Well, with that, uh, let's let's move into the breakdown. Where, as I said, we will be we will be uh, playing a tribute to the late Josh Ozersky. <laughs> So yeah, bittersweet, but um, ultimately a really great episode this week of The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. Uh, food writer Andrew Friedman of Tokeland, um decided to run an episode of their show as a tribute to Josh Ozersky, who of course was an incredible and divisive food writer and food personality who hosted a show here on Heritage Radio back in 2009 called uh, The Mr. Cutlet Show which was really, to be completely honest with you, one of my favorite programs. Um, it was just hilarious. Um, can't say enough about his use of language and um, his kind of superhero, super villain personality, depending on who you ask, but uh, he, he really played up to the whole, the whole Mr. Cutlet's role and uh, character. And Andrew Friedman actually had a chance to speak with, um, with his widow, Deneet, and uh, this, was, this was aired on the show. I thought it would be nice to share this with the listeners, um, a little bit of an intimate conversation with Andrew Friedman and Denite. So let's, let's play that, and then we'll reflect for a minute. This is from The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew.
3: Okay, we're on the phone with Denite Lador uh, from Portland, Oregon. Uh, Denite, welcome to The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Andrew. Thank you. Um, so I just, you know, I thought, and we're sort of hopefully doing this on the show as it's happening live, um, you know, trying to give people a sense maybe of, you know, the, maybe the Josh Ozerski that people didn't necessarily know um, through his writings or through, you know, the various public ways of knowing him, Twitter and so forth. Um, you know, obviously, the last six months or so of his life, you guys had moved to Portland. Um I'm just wondering if you could maybe give a sense of sort of you know to a lot of people that was a bit of an incongruity or a surprise that somebody who was so associated with New York um, would be in Portland. Can you give us a sense of what it was what it was like there for you guys?
4: Well, that is a complicated question. Um, as far as the move to Oregon, I think a lot of that was about for Josh anyway, um, in his mind for. Most of his life, the idea that everything that happened happened in New York um, was, you know, sort of paramount. Um, However, once he had started working at Esquire and was doing so much traveling and looking at different parts of the country to see where other things were happening, he began to see that it wasn't this simple black and white. You're either in New York or you're in, you know, Applebee's in the middle of wherever. No, right. Um, So. When he had been he had been to Portland quite a few times. He'd been to, um, you know, he'd been all over the country for, this, for Esquire. And he saw that these were not just, it was not the one truth of New York. He started to see, oh, look at what's happening here. Look what's happening there. And Portland especially, um, in terms of what they were doing regarding meat, regarding what they were doing um, as far as creativity, what they were doing um, with... No, not tons of money, which then equals more creative power, which I think in New York now especially is not as easy to do. Um, you have to answer to investors. You have so much other stuff to do. And you're in you' in, and Portland, pardon me, um, you could start a food cart, and you could just be like, I'm just making the best grilled cheese I want to make. Right. And that kind of thing really appealed to Josh because he, more than anything, loved authenticity, and um, Portland really rung true to him in that sense. It's interesting. So we, just, so we were deciding to leave New York, which was also largely, I have to be honest, um, about money. I mean, New York became really expensive. Um, Portland just, just was the right place for us.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that when you tell, you know, it's funny, List getting ready to do the show. I had gone back and listened to most of the old Mr. Cutler shows and um, you know, when you talk about the way he responded to the food there, it seems I could see him responding to it that way on multiple levels, you know, both from a, as someone who covers it, uh, but also as somebody, you know, obviously was a passionate cook himself. I think um, that sort of elemental style of cooking that you're describing is something that I think was kind of something that he very much would relate to as a cook um, and not just as a, as a writer
4: absolutely he 100% um agreed and you know josh was so famous for his you know anti-vegetable stance but um in portland and you know the, the west coast in general there's so much of this fresh local produce stuff and he surprisingly was kind of blown away by that and was like oh i had no idea that this kind of you know that there were so many different flavors to you know to different things that that was i think would have been surprising to a lot of his readers um and was actually,
3: you know, surprising to himself, I think, as well. Yeah. There was, um, you know, I was thinking about this show, and there was this, and thinking about Josh, and there was a line, uh, Fitzgerald, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald had this great line, it was something to the, I'm paraphrasing, but that there, were, there had never been a good biography of a writer, because a good writer is too many people, if he's any good. Um, and, you know, that kind of reminded me of Josh a little bit. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, what... What do you think? You know, as, as you know, for someone who was so public and who was such an open book in a lot of ways, what do you think there was maybe about Josh that sort of, you know, the casual observer, or someone who only knew him, um, you know, through his writing, who didn't really know the person? What do you think was maybe the biggest misconception about him, or the or the or the biggest thing about him, maybe that people just had no idea about? What do you think would surprise people about Josh? Wow. Uh, well, I like the Fitzgerald
4: quote because I think that's very. Um pithy, I don't know, Uh, he was like a million different things and he was more than many people, he was so many different kinds of people and meant a lot to different people about lots of, I mean he was in correspondence with this um, evolutionary biologist, for example um, whose name is escaping me, but you know he was hugely invested in evolutionary biology for some reason, he loved ants and he loved bees Um, he loved talking about queer theory I mean there was so many other things about Josh besides food. And it was really his, just, his, intellect, his brain was just so on fire all the time. He just loved knowing and learning and talking, thinking. Um, and uh, he, was, he also said, you know, it was just a wonderful thing that food ended up being the thing that was best able to express himself. But in all of those things that he writes, if it's about hash browns or if it's about Philip K. Dick and his uh, Adderall use... Right. You get the sense of this brain working, working, working. Um, so, as far as I think one of the things that Josh, the misconceptions about Josh would be, A, um, hmm, that he was always kind of uh, deliberately being um, contrary or aggressive. And uh, the thing about that that's sort of ironic was that Josh was always kind of somebody who wanted to be, you know, accepted in one of the group. But at the same time, he was not like everybody else. So he was kind of trying to be this um, accepted into a group, but also insisting on being himself. And so that became kind of, a I think...
3: Um, uh,
4: weird thing to kind of figure out with
3: him. Do you think he is didn't know is, when exactly you're describing it, it almost sounds like he was sort of, maybe he didn't, you know, when people use that expression, you know, they didn't know their own strength. Like, was he surprised sometimes when he would just, you know, offer an opinion or put something out there and, you know, the kind of moment that you're describing what happened, was he surprised that people could get so bent out of shape about an opinion. That's what it always seemed like to me. That it just—it it, it just, so true, yeah. it just it's seemed like, well, it's just it's an opinion. But well, why, you know? And I—I I always admired his how forthright he was. You know, Mark Ventry wrote a piece, uh, it was after you guys had moved, and I had talked to Josh about it, and a lot of people it was about food media, and a lot of journalists were very offended by it, and you know, it caused this huge Twitter explosion, and I had spoken to Josh, uh, and he hadn't read it yet, and he, then he read it, and like an hour later, he was up on Twitter saying, in my opinion, Mark Fetri is right, and that's why everyone's circling the wagons, you know, and I really admired that he would just put it out there like that without hesitation, I mean, And why not? Well, that was the
4: great thing about Josh. He was so fearless, even though at the same time he really wanted people to like him. But he didn't – it didn't matter because to him he thought if someone doesn't have an opinion and they're just – everybody's just parroting everybody else, which uh, I think we can all see is – Kind of true uh, in food media. There's a lot of sort of just everyone's lining up and repeating each other. Um, it's, it's it's brave to take a stand, and when someone takes a stand and says, "Okay, this is what I think is good, and this is what I think is bad," then that gives other people an opportunity. You know, I.e., look at all the crazy flaming you know comments he used to get of you know absolute hatred or absolute adoration of. It gives you something to bounce off of. I mean, someone needs to be the one who says, no, this is bad, this is good, and then other people can say, well, I think you're insane, or yes, I totally agree with you. But the thing about him was that even if what he was saying you didn't agree with, all he really wanted, he was welcoming people to say to him, I don't agree with you and this is why. But as long as you had a well-thought answer and you had thought about why you didn't agree with him, he welcomed that. That was all he wanted. Like meet me here, tell me why. Okay, yeah, all right, you're right. Or no, I still think I'm just I agree with what I said, but I see your point. And that's really what he was trying to get with a conversation. And that can only happen if somebody has an opinion to
3: start from. Great. Um, I did want to ask you. It's something over the year, last, you know, year um, that I've, I know I've, I've mentioned. I just wonder if anything's going on. You know, so much of his stuff because he was very prolific, and because of the age that we're, you know, all living and working in, um, you know, a lot of his material and a lot of his best pieces appeared in, in different places um, uh, and in a lot of online places. Um, is there any effort or uh, anything underway in terms of maybe getting? Together, some kind of a like an Ozersky reader or something where these things maybe would be found in one place eventually?
4: Uh, That is exactly right. There's been a lot of interest. I mean, Josh was not only just a great writer and a great observer and um, uh, somebody who had a lot to say and think, but also he was just uh, in and of himself a very interesting person with an interesting story. And I think that if you read a lot of his things, you can see that. But as you said, they're all very um, sort of far-flung. And, uh, yeah, so there is a, there's a lot of interest. People are asking lots of questions, and so there is a, there are two books, actually, in the works, um, that will sort of bring together, I think, the best of Josh Ozersky, and his essays, the stuff that he had thought himself was, uh, best expressed who he was.
3: Great. Well, that's great to hear. Um, Well, Denise, thank you for joining us. I know it's probably, I'm sure, an emotional week that you're in the midst of right now um, coming up on the anniversary. We really appreciate it, and it was great to have you be a part of the show.
4: Thank you so much, Andrew. It's really important to me that we all
3: remember him. Great. Same here. Okay. Uh, This was Denise Lador talking to us from Portland, Oregon, and uh, we'll be right back with more of The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew.
2: Wow. That's like, I don't know. I have to say my own like personal Josh Ozersky story. Um, I, we went out on a couple dates, dates um, back in like 2005. And on our first date, he showed up with a signed copy of his book, Meet Me in Manhattan, <laughs> <laughs> which is all about great places to get burgers and eat meat throughout, throughout the borough of Manhattan. And I was like, all right. This guy is wow. he's coming. He's, he's coming strong. He's he coming strong. He showed up with
1: a signed copy of his book. <laughs>
2: yeah. We had dinner at Franny's in the original location, oh, and man. he was like, hey, and we met at the bar, and he's like, here, I brought you a copy of my book, and like, <laughs> you know, we only went out a handful of times, and of course, I like loved uh, a, a lot of Josh's work, but I also just mostly really appreciated... You know, his willingness to kind of go out on a limb and have strong opinions. It's like it's like such a nice oh, um, man. space to to have in the media. And, and we definitely, you know, miss his kind of, you know, poking at the bear. Yes. of The food media. Space. You know, it,
1: we had we had a bunch of chefs on the show with Jimmy and Andrew and uh, one of the chefs uh, he's saying, you know, Josh was the kind of guy where like if he was at your restaurant, you knew you had to send out free drinks and free food. and That was just like part of the deal but also part of that deal would be him trashing the stuff like it, did, <laughs> it didn't matter you know and he's like i remember sending josh out a salad once and he called for the for me to come to the table and he said hey i asked you to send me some stuff not poison me <laughs> so i mean yeah it was i it, uh, <laughs> so many stories on that show and so many laugh out loud stories Um, so definitely listen to that full episode and and one real piece of recommended reading the thing that kind of hit me is his best work personally I think was an article called A Solitary Man um, that was in Savore I believe an essay about his father which was just like really gripping work so check that out give that a read if you can and um, yeah rest in peace So uh, without further ado, though, we will close the show on a positive note and give out some big ups as we always do. So this is Big Ups. (laughs) Of course, the Big Ups theme song by the band Big Ups, who just got back from their European tour. Very excited for them. And, uh, yeah, this is where we like to send some shout-outs to people doing great things. Uh, Aaron, why don't you kick it off? Who who you want to big up this week?
2: I have, like, the biggest big up of all time Stop. this week. I um, had uh, the lovely pleasure of grabbing drinks with Agatha Kulaga. My Polish is not great. I hope that's the right pronunciation. She is the co-founder of Ovenly, a, a wonderful kind of baking company you might know for their delicious um, and super addictive cookies. Um, but what you might not know is they are so much more than just an amazing bakery over in Greenpoint. Um, they do a ton of work with um, the way they employ folks that are really a, a real social mission to their work. They work with an organization called Getting Out, Staying Out, which is a employment uh, kind of linkage nonprofit that works with people recently out of the criminal justice system to find them, um, jobs and solid and steady jobs they also work with the ansab center for refugees um, which is a job placement and resource for um, migrants and political refugees and i just like there's so many things going on over at ovenly with regards to really progressive employment practices to really looking at ways to be environmentally responsible and i think this melding of, um, of, you know, a for-profit business that's making great cookies, but is also thinking about how do we expand our impact beyond just putting delicious things out in the world? How do we um, use our power as an employer to really affect powerful change in people's lives? And um, I was just so inspired by hearing more uh, from Agatha and the work that they're doing at Ovenly. There's a great episode um, featuring her on Radio Cherry Bomb. You need to check it out. Um, And then get some cookies,
1: of course. Yes, cookies are always an easy sell. Um, Cool. Well, my big ups is uh, actually, I'm going to go with Anthony Falco. All
2: right. Of Roberta's. I dig it, I dig it. Yeah,
1: he he stopped into Gunwash last night, and we were kind of like reminiscing on uh, all the years here at Roberta's and at Heritage Radio. And I think sometimes in the national conversation about Roberta's, Falco might get a little bit overlooked. He's like such a huge part of the fabric here and probably one of the hardest working people I've ever met. Um, if you know Falco, you know that guy can put in a 20 hour day without, you know, breaking a sweat, really. I mean, he, he's a monster. He does all their mobile ops. He's the, uh, they, they proclaimed him the pizza czar. He's behind so many of the uh, pizzas and uh, creative things and overall weirdness of Roberta's over the years. So just just a shout out to Anthony Falco. Keep keep kicking ass. Keep doing your thing,
2: Rad. I I would definitely co- <laughs> second that. Also, if you just want to have a super incredibly geeky conversation on um, all things pizza. He oh is your dude.
1: Yeah, it's like, you know, we're, we're closing out the bar at Roberta's and he's like, he's like, God, there's no food open. There's no food open. What am I going to do? I guess I'll have to go to my last resort, Domino's. And I'm like, damn, it's just always pizza with you. Like, <laughs> even to the bottom of the barrel, it's pizza with you. And he's like, hey, I can't help it, man. Their thin crust isn't the worst. <laughs>
2: it's not the worst. Yeah. You know, I'm always going to go for a little Caesar over Domino's when in a pinch. Um, just putting that out there
1: Little, little, little teaser for uh, later in this season We are going to plan uh, we, we discussed last night, Falco and I uh, On a season finale of Gunwash Ordering dominoes To the Heritage Radio Network studio Through Roberta's Oof. Stay tuned for that Pizza pizza Exactly Anyway that's it for this week's Week in Review um, Thank you for listening Please leave us comments on iTunes or on Stitcher Or however you like to listen to podcasts Find us on social media We are active on all of our channels Thank you very much Heritage underscore radio on Twitter And Instagram Heritage Radio Network on Facebook Again I'm Jack Inslee Joined by the executive director of this wonderful network Aaron Fairbanks And we will see you all next week Thank you Sarah McKean for producing